live in a culture, don't we, that talks a lot about the idea of my rights. Uh, if you turn on the TV or open your BBC News app on your phone, it won't be long before you come across something to do with people's rights. Whether it's the right to have all the facts about Brexit, the right to grow up in a world that hasn't been ruined by climate change, a mother's right to choose whether or not to keep their baby, a teenager's right to choose their gender. We live in a culture obsessed with rights. And it's not just in politics. If you go to the self-help section of any bookshop, you'll find plenty of advice on your rights. Plenty of people telling you that if you want to be successful, if you want to live a good life, then the number one thing you need to do is fight for your rights. I looked through some of those books and online a bit this week. Apparently we have the right to follow our own values, whatever those values might be. The right to change your mind at any time. The right to be happy. The right to be angry. The right to be successful. The right to be assertive. The best one, the right to make statements which have no logical basis and which need no justification. You can just say what you like. You have the right to do that. Those, people say, are some of your rights. And of course, rights in themselves are are not bad things, are they? The UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights is set out to protect people, to protect them from abuse and oppression. And so rights, they're not bad things. But all too often our concern for rights is less about protecting others and more about looking after ourselves. And it's in a society that's filled with this kind of rights talk, this kind of thinking, uh, that it's unsurprising then that we see those things starting to slip into the church. And so we can all be tempted at times to, to be more interested in ourselves than those around us. We can think a lot more about our right to good teaching or good music or a good youth work or a good kids club. Those are our rights as part of a church. We think a lot about those things, but perhaps less about how we can serve others around us, how we can give rather than receive. We live in a culture obsessed with my rights. And it's that self-centered attitude that slips into the church. It's true today, and it was true in the first century church in Corinth. As Nathan's already said, since the new year, we've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And we've had a bit of a pause over Easter, so let me just catch you up to where we've got to so far. It's the Apostle Paul writing this letter to the church in Corinth, And we've seen that the church has big problems. Right at the beginning, we saw there was quarreling and division as different groups aligned themselves with different church leaders and were fighting amongst themselves. There's also serious immorality. A man sleeping with his stepmother. People boasting about going to a brothel. That sort of stuff is going on. There are lawsuits as Christians take other Christians to the courts. It's a church with some serious problems. 
But as you read through all the different problems, all the fighting, all the immorality and selfishness, we've seen that in the end, what it boils down to is that the Corinthians have become self-centered rather than Christ-centered. Their focus has shifted away from Christ, the one who they believed in when they heard the gospel from Paul, away from Christ and onto themselves. And so Paul writes this letter to his old church that he planted to try and address that shift, to refocus the Corinthians on Christ and the cross. Because that is where he says again and again, That true wisdom, true power, true freedom, true spirituality, all the things the Corinthians were looking for, they're all found in Christ, all found at the cross. And so as we've worked through the letter, we've we've seen this contrast. The Corinthians' self-centered view of the Christian life and Paul's Christ-centered, cross-shaped view of the Christian life. In chapters 1 to 4, we saw that the Corinthians have a self-centered view of wisdom. They thought that having wisdom and power meant looking impressive to the world. But Paul told them, no. No, it's through the preaching of the foolish-sounding gospel that God is pleased to save people. That was all about wisdom. Now in chapters 5 to 11, which we're in the middle of, we've started to see, uh, well, the Corinthians' self-centered view of freedom. So chapter 6, verse 12, you don't need to turn there, but chapter 6, verse 12, we saw one of the Corinthian kind of slogans, catchphrases, perhaps. They said, I have the right to do anything. The Corinthians, they've, they've taken the gospel, the message about freedom in Christ, And they've made it all about themselves. Uh, And so for them, freedom, freedom in Christ, well, it was just a license to do what you want. Uh, They thought, I can sleep with whoever I like. I can eat whatever I like. It doesn't really matter about anyone else. It's my freedom, my rights, and so I'm going to do what I want to do. Uh, And that brings us to chapter 8. And this... Uh, issue of eating food sacrificed to idols. Uh, It's an issue that we can see at the start of verse 8 that the Corinthians have written to Paul about. Uh, We're in the middle of a section where Paul's addressing certain issues that they have written to him about. Uh, And so it's obviously something that concerns them. And we're going to see why later on. Uh, It's a big issue for them. uh, But I imagine it's probably not a major issue for us here this evening. There's a bunch of guys that tend to go down to KFC after the evening service. I don't imagine that they're wondering whether or not their popcorn chicken has been sacrificed to a false god before they eat it. Eating idol food is probably not something that was on our minds when we came to church this evening. But the question of how to use our Christian freedom, how to use our rights is a major question for us. And so we need to pay careful attention to what Paul says in chapters 8 through to 10, because we'll see that his answer is much more than just a a yes or no. And so this evening, as we get started in this section, I want us to see three things. And the first is that Paul wants us to desire love 
more than knowledge. Desire love more than knowledge. Before tackling this particular problem of eating idle food, Paul returns to a familiar Corinthian issue, being puffed up by knowledge. So in verse 1, 8 verse 1, he quotes what's probably another Corinthian catchphrase. We all possess knowledge. You see, the Corinthians, if you can remember, they, they valued wisdom, they valued knowledge. We saw that back at the start of the letter. For them, knowledge and wisdom were signs of spirituality. So the more knowledge you had, the more spiritual you were. And that meant that there were plenty of people in the church that had a lot of knowledge. These are the guys that had read all of the books. They'd been on all of the conferences. They loved a good theological debate. loved a chance to show off what they knew. And more often than not, their theology, their doctrine, was actually spot on. You'll see as we go through the chapter, Paul doesn't actually disagree with their theology. When it comes to eating idle food, he says their theology is correct. He doesn't disagree with their knowledge, but he does disagree with their attitude. He says, you've got plenty of knowledge, Corinthians, but not much love. And verse 1, knowledge on its own, knowledge without love, puffs up. In other words, knowledge on its own leads to pride, to feeling superior to those around you. And pride leads to judgmentalism, to looking down on those who you think have less knowledge than you, viewing them as in some way spiritually inferior to you. And so whilst the Corinthians, they had lots of knowledge, they lacked love. And we can be the same, can't we? In a church that rightly values good Bible teaching and good doctrine, we can fall into the trap of thinking that knowledge equals spirituality. And so perhaps we hear a passionate preacher, someone who clearly loves the Lord Jesus and exhorts us to do the same. But rather than taking what he says to heart, all we do is critique his sermon, critique his handling of the text, rather than praying that God would help us to love Christ more and live for him more. All we do is just turn to our friend at the end of the sermon and say, well, I'm really not convinced by his handling of verse 7. Were you? Surely surely he knows that's not right. Where, Where did he go to college? Or we go to a conference with some Christians from another church background, and we stand there unable to sing praise to God along with our brothers and sisters in Christ, because all we're able to think is, These words are a little bit wishy-washy, a bit theologically lightweight. And I really do wish they would stop calling it worship. Haven't they read Romans 12? Don't they know that our whole life is meant to be worship, not just singing? In both cases, we might have a point. But Paul says we have to be careful. Careful that our knowledge isn't knowledge without love. Because that will just lead to being puffed up. 
to pride and judgmentalism. And verse 2, he says that a lack of love shows that you really don't know as much as you think you do. You see, the Corinthians, they might know a lot about God, but their lack of love shows they don't really know God. Verse 3, Paul says, but whoever loves God is known by God. It is love, Paul says, that is the mark of the truly spiritual Christian. The mark of someone that is known and knows and is known by God, rather than just knowing a lot about God. Love for God and love for other people. So verse 1 again, knowledge puffs up whilst love builds up. And so the Christian who truly knows and loves God will actively seek to build others up. That'll be their desire, not to knock them down. And so rather than standing over others in judgment, they want nothing more than to serve their brothers and sisters, encourage them, help them to grow in any way that they can. And so do you see, right at the start, before we even get to this nitty-gritty issue of idle food, Paul's big point to these know-it-all Corinthians, the ones that think they've got everything sussed, everything neatly tied up, well, Paul's point is that God is far more concerned about the love in our hearts than the knowledge in our heads. That we are to desire love over knowledge. Now, having said all of that, we're not to take verses 1 to 3 too far. Of course, Paul isn't dismissing knowledge altogether. This isn't a case of knowledge versus love. When I was at university, people sometimes said that that love unites whilst doctrine divides. And so all we need to do is just love, forget the theology and the doctrine stuff. No, that's, that's not what Paul is saying. It's not one or the other. Knowledge still matters. We need to know and believe the truth. And in this case, Paul says, we need to believe the truth about God and idols. Which is our second point. Believe in God, not idols. And so in verse 4, Paul returns to this issue of eating food sacrificed to idols. And as we've said, it's probably not a big deal for us. But it was a big deal for them. You see, in their world, in Corinthian culture, paganism pervaded everything. There were temples to all sorts of gods on every street corner. And so it meant that it was very difficult for a Christian living in a place like Corinth to avoid contact with or kind of some sort of connection with temples and idol worship especially when it came to food. It was common practice for uh, these priests to offer up food sacrifices to their gods. Uh, part of the meat that they, that they sacrifice, that will be kept for the idol, uh, but the rest would just go down to the market. And so actually, most of the meat down at the market would have at some point been sacrificed to a false god, to an idol in the temple. And so the question the Christians are asking is, should we buy such meat? Should we eat it if it's been sacrificed to an idol? And what about eating in the temple? 
which were the kind of equivalent of our pubs and restaurants? Could a Christian go to their friend's wedding meal or birthday party if it meant going along to the temple and eating food sacrificed to idols? That was their question. And initially we see that Paul agrees with the know-it-all Corinthians. Verse 4, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. Paul says idols are nothing. Despite the fact that people worship them as gods, despite the fact that they bow down and pray to them, they are nothing more than lumps of wood and stone and metal. And that's actually a truth that God has been teaching his people throughout history, isn't it? Hundreds of years before, the prophet Isaiah spoke against idols. Uh, Just listen to what he says in Isaiah 44. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He cuts down cedars or perhaps a, a cypress or an oak. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and he eats his fill. He warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you're my god. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or the understanding to say, Half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals and I roasted the meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? No one stops to think. Paul says we must know the truth. The idols are nothing. They're they're blocks of wood, dead, empty. They are nothing. And verse 6, there is only one God. Just look at verse 6. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come and through whom we live. And so you see, the, the, the Corinthians theology, it's correct. Paul agrees. Yes, there is one God, the creator and sustainer of all things. We're created by him in order to live for him. And we do that through Jesus Christ, who is himself God. That's the Corinthians theology. They're they're correct. And their theology, well, their knowledge, it, it leads them to say, well, that means there's absolutely nothing wrong with eating food sacrificed to idols, whether it's brought in the market or eating it in the temple. Uh, The idols, they're nothing. And it doesn't matter where food is from or what's been done to it. Uh, Verse 8, food in itself makes no difference to our relationship with God. It's it's just food. And so based on knowledge alone, the Corinthians have got it right, haven't they? They've come to the right conclusion. Idols are nothing. There's one God. So eat what you like. But we've already seen that, that knowledge alone is not enough. Knowledge alone puffs up. Knowledge alone leads to self-centered choices. 
And so whilst Paul might agree with their knowledge, he completely disagrees with their practice, with their application of that knowledge. Which brings us to our last point. Uh, Paul says we're to live for others, not ourselves. Live for others, not yourself. The know-it-all Corinthians might have been theologically correct, but in verse 7 we see there's another group, another group in the Corinthian church, people who are still unsure about eating idol food. Maybe they've been recently converted from idol worship, and so returning to the place and the practice that they've just left behind, it causes them unease. For whatever reason, eating this food feels wrong to them. It seems sinful in some way. And so in verse 9, Paul tells the know-it-alls to stop thinking about themselves and their rights and instead start thinking about others when it comes to exercising their freedom. So verse 9, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul warns them, be careful. Be careful because in exercising exercising your freedom selfishly, you are actually leading others into sin. Verse 10, For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, Won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? The the self-centered attitude of the know-it-alls, the attitude that says, it's my right to eat what I like, is leading other believers into doing things that they think is sinful. And so in complete contrast to the love that builds up in verse 1, Paul says in verse 11 that their actions aren't building up, they're destroying other Christians. Destroying those for whom Christ died. And verse 12 he says, when you sin against someone like this, when you lead them into sin, you're sinning against Christ. And so do you see how this passage broadens our understanding of sin? We know, don't we, that it is sin to disobey God's word when we break his law. Uh, But here Paul is saying that it's also possible to sin by acting against your conscience, by choosing to do something despite the fact you believe it to be wrong. And so regardless of the fact that idols are nothing, and regardless of the fact that food is spiritually neutral, If a believer thought that it was sinful to eat in an idol's temple, and then they went ahead and did that anyway, that would be sin for them. It is possible to act, to sin by acting against your conscience. And it's also possible to sin when through your actions, you lead someone else to act against their conscience. That's why Paul says in verse 12, it's when you sin against them in this way and you wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. It's possible to sin when, through your actions, you lead someone to do something that they think is wrong. And so, do you see, when making decisions based on knowledge alone, 
We say, these are my rights. I'm free to do this, so I'm going to do it, regardless of how it affects others. They should know better anyway. But Paul says knowledge alone is not enough. Christians are to make decisions based on love. And love means making decisions for the sake of others, not for ourselves. It means giving up our rights, our freedoms, so as not to harm other believers. And so that might mean choosing not to meet at the pub or not to have wine at your dinner party if you know that someone in the group, someone coming, struggles with alcohol. It might mean choosing not to watch a certain TV program because whilst you might think it's okay, others find it unhelpful. And that by your watching it, you just encourage them to do the same. It might mean choosing not to wear certain clothes. Because whilst there are no black and white rules on what Christians should and shouldn't wear, you don't want to cause other people to stumble. There are plenty of examples of things that you as Christians, we as Christians, are free to do, but that we could choose not to do for the sake of others. We're to follow Paul's example when he says in verse 13, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Paul says, I'll be a veggie for life, if that will help my brothers and sisters in Christ. Were we to follow his example, to do whatever, or whatever it takes, so as not to lead others into sin. We follow Paul's example as he follows Christ's example. That's where he ends this section in 11 verse 1. He says, follow my example, copy me, as I follow the example of Christ. And we follow a saviour, don't we, who has given up his rights for the sake of the weak. We've just finished a series in Isaiah where we've seen how Christ gave up his rights as the Son of God, as the one who Paul says in verse 6, through whom all things have been created, the one who has the right to the throne of the universe, yet gave that up for us. We follow the one who Philippians 2 tells us is God himself, yet did not use that for his own advantage, but rather made himself nothing, made himself a servant, a slave, so that through his humility, through his death, we can have life. We follow the Saviour who was rich beyond, a me- beyond measure, beyond anything we can possibly imagine, but became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Paul says, follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. Self-centered freedom says, it's all about me, it's all about my rights. Forget everyone else, I'm free to do it, I want to do it, so I'm going to do it. But Christ-centered freedom says, I follow the one who gave his life for me, who gave everything for me. There is nothing I would not give up 
for him and for the sake of his people. Let's pray that we would be Christ-centered in our freedoms. Let's pray. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Our loving Heavenly Father, we know that by ourselves these things are impossible for us. It is not just our culture, Father, it's our hearts that are selfish, our hearts that demand our rights and our freedoms. And so, Father, please, as we think of those things, would your Spirit be working in us would you, would you change our hearts to be more like our Lord Jesus, the one who gave up his rights for us, for the sake of the weak, for the sake of others? Father, would we be more like him for his glory, we pray. Amen.